Well, with that, let's turn our attention to Psalm 10. And it's fitting that we would uh, have a verse from Psalm 9 to set us up for Psalm 10 uh, because uh, Psalms 9 and 10 have quite a close relationship to one another. In fact, in some versions of the Old Testament, Psalms 9 and 10, as we have them, are actually combined into one psalm. And uh, the reason why they're considered so closely knit uh, is, is twofold. One, uh, the themes of Psalms 9 and 10 are very closely related. I said last week that really the, the picture that Psalm 9 paints is one of a world in which the helpless are being afflicted by the wicked, yet God is king on the throne of heaven, and he works justice. Well, that is exactly the same picture that Psalm 10 has in view. Uh, it's the same perspective. And so the themes of Psalm 9 and 10 are very, very closely related. Even the vocabulary of Psalms 9 and 10 are very closely related. Uh, but another major reason why many people believe that Psalms 9 and 10 uh, go together is because together these two psalms form uh, an acrostic uh, in the hebrew alphabet so the first line of psalm 9 starts with the first letter of the hebrew alphabet and then a few lines later you get the second letter of the hebrew alphabet and so on and so forth uh, but what's strange about this acrostic is it's not complete uh, it's imperfect there's some letters missing there's some letters that are out of order from the, the order of the alphabet and so it's kind of weird because you look at it and it's too deliberate to be a coincidence, but it's not perfect enough to say it's a true acrostic. So what do you make of that? Well, my favorite take on that comes from a pastor in Minneapolis named Jason Meyer, and he calls this a broken acrostic for a broken world. And there is no better way to sum up the worldview of Psalms 9 and 10 than to describe the world as broken. With that in mind, we're going to read together Psalm 10, and uh, since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus, would you, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless 
are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, it has been a heavy week. You may have seen early in this week, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was in the news. Last year at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, the messengers of the churches commissioned a task force, a, a sexual abuse task force, to hire a third-party investigation into uh, mishandling of sexual abuse cases on the part of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this last Sunday, uh, that uh, task force released to the public the findings of this third-party investigation, and, and what they found was horrifying. Not only in this report were reports of cases of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches by deacons, staff members, seminary professors, pastors. But really the, the main focus of uh, this report was how these things were reported to the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention and then they did nothing with them. And in many cases, pastors who, church staff members who were, uh, who, who were guilty of sexual abuse in one church left and went across the country to another church. And even though that information was known, it wasn't shared with their new church, they hired the person, brought them on, didn't know that what had happened in the previous church. And then, of course, this week, we all were devastated as we saw what unfolded in Uvalde. Rob Elementary School, 18-year-old, took the lives of 19, 9, and 
10, 11-year-olds, two teachers. We've seen on full display this week the evil in our world, the darkness in our world. And there's a truth that we have to come to terms with in the face of this evil and wickedness and darkness that we see on display. There is a sovereign and all-powerful God on the throne of heaven, and he didn't stop it. Powerful people abuse their powers to take advantage of the vulnerable, innocent people, slaughtered, wickedness running rampant, and God let it happen. What do you do with that? What do we do with the reality that God has all power in heaven and on earth, and yet evil still persists? Wickedness still is allowed to happen. Well, in God's providence, he has brought us to Psalm 10 which deals precisely with that question and that issue. The bottom line central truth that Psalm 10 points us to in the face of the evil we see in this world, in the face of the wickedness that seems to run rampant, the central truth is that God will repay wickedness done against the helpless. God will repay wickedness done against the helpless. As we see this truth unfold and walk through this psalm verse by verse, we're going to ultimately see four ways that we are to respond to this truth, four ways we are to respond to the evil in our world. And as we walk through this text, we're going to see that David has laid it out in two sections. In verses 1 through 11, we'll see a lament over the arrogant evil. And in verses 12 through 18, we'll see a prayer to the righteous God. First, a lament over the arrogant evil. Look with me at verse 1 as David begins the psalm with this gut-wrenching question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Back in Psalm 9 and verse 9, David identified Yahweh as a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. But now this God who is a stronghold in times of trouble seems to be hiding himself in these times of trouble in verse 1. Trouble is near And God seems to be far. 
And so David laments this trouble around him, starting in verse 2, as he says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Uh, David describes these wicked as arrogant. And he'll go on in the rest of the psalm to explain what that means and what that looks like. But he, he describes how these arrogant, wicked hunt down the vulnerable. And so his prayer right out of the gate is that their schemes would backfire. Remember what we saw back in Psalm 9 and verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made and the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. We saw in Psalm 9 that one of the ways that God brings judgment on the wicked is by letting them fall in their own trap, by letting them self-sabotage. And that's what David's prayer is here as he sees the wicked hunting down the vulnerable. He prays that their schemes would backfire. He goes on in verse 3, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Uh, So the arrogance of the wicked involves boasting about what he wants. You know, this is the way I want it, and I'm going to get it. This is the way I want it, and I'm going to make it happen, and I'm willing to do anything to anybody to make this happen, to get what I want. He boasts in what he wants. In, uh, in the first line of verse 3, we see that the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul. And on the second line, the phrase is very similar. If you look at the, if you have an ESV, you might see a footnote on, on that line. Uh, The phrase literally is, he blesses the one greedy for gain. So these are both describing in in different words the same idea, boasting of what he wants, blessing the one greedy for gain. It's this idea of, of glorifying selfish desires, glorifying what he wants. And what is it that the wicked wants? What is it that he desires? Not God, not Yahweh. Look at verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He wants what he wants, and what he wants is not God. Verse 3 says he renounces the Lord. And here, in all of his schemes, it says there is no God. We saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 14, verse 1, that uh, to say in the heart, there is no God, is the essence of foolishness. And here in Psalm 10, 4, we see that to say there is no God is the essence of arrogance. One of the defining characteristics of wickedness is disregard for God. I'm going to do what I want to do, and God is not going to stop me. Then look at verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. So look at the progression from uh, verses 2 through 4 of arrogance, boasts, pride. Uh, There is this 
pride and arrogance that the wicked have. And in verse 5 then, that arrogance is only fueled by the success that the wicked enjoy. He prospers at all times. And it seems that there's no one in heaven or earth that is going to stop him. God's judgments are, are out of mind, out of sight. And anyone in his way that he thinks would stop at, he's so confident that he's going to succeed, he scoffs at those who would stop him. And look at verse 6. The boasting continues. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The wicked says, I'm unstoppable. I'm immovable. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I am never going to be slowed down. We see more of how the wicked uses his mouth in verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. His words are harsh, deceptive. Uh, just what he says leads to the oppression of others. Just as, a, as an illustration of how words uh, can be oppressive. Uh, if you were in our First Samuel study, you might remember how Saul made this rash vow when he was in battle. And he said uh, that no one was going to be able to eat or drink until he was avenged on his enemies. And it led to uh, his, his army being weak and discouraged. And it was oppressive just in the way that he made this rash vow, this oath with his words. Well, that's just an illustration of the way that words, vows, cursing can be oppressive to people. You look inside the wicked's mouth and all you see is evil schemes and sin. Then look at verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. We see here the wicked as a predator. He uses stealth and deception to cloak what he's doing. He stalks his prey and devours when the time is right. Verse 9 he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The wicked traps the vulnerable, captures them to take advantage, to get what he wants. Verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. So you have the strong on the one hand, the helpless on the other hand, and the strong stalks and ambushes and traps, and the helpless are crushed and trampled on, and they fall. The wicked abuses his position of power to take advantage of the powerless and to indulge his own sinful desires. And what does he think about God in all of this? Verse 11 he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked pursues his own desires, takes advantage of whoever he wants to to get what he wants. And all the while, he doesn't believe anyone, including God, is going to hold him accountable. He's gotten away with it so far. 
and it looks like it's going to stay that way. Well, I began by saying that the Bible shows clearly God will repay wickedness done against the helpless. But how do we respond when verses 1 through 11 are what we see when we look out in the world? How do we respond in the meantime in light of the truth? Well, I want to give us four responses, but we're going to look at just two for now, and we'll look at two at the end of this psalm. How do we respond to this? First of all, lament evil. Lament evil. It is good and right to have sorrow over the evil that is in our world. The evil done against the helpless, the vulnerable. And I want you to notice two aspects of David's lament in this psalm. First, David acknowledges God. He writes this psalm to God. He says, why, O oh Lord, he, he acknowledges God in his sorrow over the wicked. And he's not just complaining. He is taking his sorrow and his grief to God. He's burdened by how things are. And he's burdened not just because things are not the way that he would want them. He's burdened because things are not in line with God's law. Not in line with the way that God wants them to be. So he takes his burden to the one whose law these wicked people are breaking. But not only that, he takes his burden to the God who can actually do something about the wickedness that he sees. No one is more heartbroken over the evil and wickedness in our world than the God who created the world to be good and glorify him. So David acknowledges God and brings his grief and his pain, his lament over this evil to God. So David acknowledges God. Then notice another feature. David acknowledges evil as evil. He acknowledges God and he acknowledges evil as evil. There is no candy coating in Psalm 10. I mean, he describes this as wicked arrogant, he's the word, schemes, deceit, mischief, iniquity, oppression. David recognizes the wickedness of the evil that he sees. He is honest about the wickedness and evil that is before him. You know, one of the things uh, about uh, our church that I'm really grateful for is we have a, a really high view of the sovereignty of God. And I'm really grateful for that. But you know, it, it's tempting for people like us who have a high view of the sovereignty of God to acknowledge God, like David does, but to acknowledge God in such a way that almost ignores or minimizes the wickedness of evil. Well, yeah, that tragedy happened, but God is sovereign. Yeah, that bad thing happened, but, but God is sovereign. God is good. He's working all things together for good. And, and in a rush to acknowledge God's sovereignty, we can overlook or minimize or ignore or even put a positive spin on evil and wickedness if we're not careful. But the Bible would have us hold two truths in tension. God is totally 
sovereign. And he is working all things together for good. And there is pure evil in the world that is indefensible. And Psalm 10 gives us permission to hold both of those truths in tension. God is sovereign and evil is evil. God is good and evil is wickedness. But then we come back to this question again. Even as we lament and acknowledge God, acknowledge the evil in our world, what do we make of a sovereign God who tolerates wickedness in his world? Does the fact that God is sovereign over evil make God evil? No, by no means. Does the fact that God is sovereign over evil make evil good? Absolutely not. Then why does he stand far away? Why does he hide himself in times of trouble? Well, I would be foolish to suggest that the answer is simple. But let me point us to one answer that God gives about this. And it leads us to the second response. Understand the patience of God. Understand the patience of God. God is not evil. And evil is not good. God is patient. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three. Look at verses eight through ten. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow. To fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. And dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is not slow. God is patient. God is not tolerance. He is merciful. The wicked misinterprets God's patience, the fearful misinterpret God's patience. But the truth is, that same patience that we look at and say, why God? Is the same patience that waited on you and me while we disregarded God and did whatever we wanted and boasted in our desires and acted like we could get away with it and God would never hold us accountable. That same patience waited on us until God's kindness finally led us to repentance. You know, we may not 
fully understand God's purposes for why he allows the evil that he allows. But one thing we can take to the bank is that God is patient. And that patience is the only hope this world has for salvation. But what we see about God's patience, even in 2 Peter 3 here, is that though God is patient, he is not negligent. He is patient, but he is not overlooking the evil that is done in his world. 2 Peter 3 points to the fact that judgment will come. The day of the Lord will come. What is hidden will be exposed. God will bring justice. God will repay the wickedness done against the helpless. And that leads us to the last part of Psalm 10, a prayer to the righteous God. A prayer to the righteous God. Turn back with me to Psalm 10. Like David said in Psalm 919, in verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. So as he prays, arise, O Lord, it's as if David is looking up into heaven and he sees God on the throne sitting down. And so he looks up at the Lord sitting on his throne and he says, stand up. Come down here where your people are being afflicted by the arrogant, wicked, and come and do something about it. In light of the the wicked's disregard for God that we saw earlier in the psalm, David says in verse 13, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And, And this is not a question of sorrow, like, oh, why is this bad thing happening? This is a question of outrage, like, what do you think you're doing? How can you be so foolish? And we see that in verse 14, because he says to Yahweh, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. God does see. However the wicked may think or feel about what he is doing and how he's getting away with it, God does see. And he doesn't just see, he takes note, David says. And it goes further, he takes note of both mischief and vexation he takes note both of the mischief that the wicked are doing and the vexation that they are causing he takes note of sin and suffering there is not one little act of wickedness against the vulnerable that god has not seen and taken note of and there is not one tear shed at the hands of the wicked that god does not know and not only does he see and not only does he take note he takes it into his hands god will act he will act to repay the mischief of the wicked he will act to relieve the vexation of the helpless god will take it into his hands He will execute judgment on the earth. So, the end of verse 14 says, the helpless commits himself to this God. Knowing the justice of God, knowing the reliability of God's judgment, the helpless commits himself. 
to God. He gives himself fully to this God who will render judgment. He gives himself fully to the one who repays the wicked and defends the vulnerable. The helpless knows that God is just. The helpless knows God's heart. The helpless knows this is a God who is trustworthy, and so I commit myself to him. David continues his petition in verse 15. He says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. He calls on God to destroy the power of the one who abuses his power to oppress the vulnerable. Back in verse 13, David recalls how the wicked are saying to God, you will not call to account, but in light of God's certain justice, here in verse 15, David says, call his wickedness to account. And notice he says, till you find none. God will work justice until there is no injustice left. There is not one small little act of oppression that will not be answered by God. David follows up these petitions, these requests, with a reflection on who God is in verse 16. The Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Yahweh is the king on the throne who will reign eternally. The wicked may say in verse 6, I shall not be moved Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. But as Psalm 9, 5 said, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Yet Yahweh will reign as king forever. And ever above every wicked scheme of the earth, above the powerful, above the oppressive, Yahweh sits on the throne above them all, reigning. And when every last one falls, when every plan fails, when they all perish and fall, He will still be on the throne, He will outlast them all eternally. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21, in light of what we've seen in Psalm 10 and verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever, the nations perish from his land. Listen to Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In the end, it will be God dwelling with his people in his land. And the wicked and arrogant and evil oppressors will be nowhere to be found. Looking back to Psalm 10, look at verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. The afflicted does not escape Yahweh's notice. Back in verse 3, we saw how the wicked boasts in his own desire. But what we see here is that it's the desire of the afflicted that God hears. However loud the wicked may boast in his desires... And however weak the whisper of the desire of the afflicted may be, it's the desire of the afflicted that God hears. The vulnerable, the helpless, the oppressed may have to wait for now for justice, but notice, he will strengthen their heart. Justice may not come today, but strength is available right now in Yahweh. Yahweh hears, he takes note, but to what end? To what end does he incline his ear toward the afflicted? Verse 18, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. God hears so he can act in justice. His justice not only repays the wicked, his justice defends the needy. In the end, no evil men will be able to terrorize the vulnerable ever again. God will repay wickedness done against the helpless. How do we respond? Laments evil. Remember, understand the patience of God. Third, commit yourself to God. Commit yourself to God. Remember, David said in verse 14, to you, the helpless commits himself. In light of who this God is, what he will do, what his heart is, may we all commit ourselves to him 
in faith, trusting ourselves, entrusting ourselves to him. Because here's, as we look at the justice of God on display in Psalm 10, here's what we need to understand. Every oppressor will be repaid, without exception, but only the helpless who trust Yahweh will receive the help of Yahweh. It is only the helpless and afflicted who commit themselves to Yahweh and find a refuge in Him for whom justice will mean protection and defense. And so as we look ahead to the judgment of God, as we sit here right now in the waiting, in the patience of God, that is allowing a time before final judgment. That patience is meant to lead us to something. It's meant to lead us to commit ourselves to God. It's meant to lead us to repent of our sin and trust in Him. And so as you look toward the day of judgment that is closer and closer now than it's ever been before, where will you stand How will you stand before God on that day when he judges the living and the dead? Will you stand on your own? On your own record? On your own performance? Or will you stand having found refuge in God? May we all commit ourselves to this God. Practically speaking, What does it look like for us as we are in the waiting, as we want to trust this God in the face of wickedness and injustice around us? What does it look like practically to commit ourselves to this God? Well, turn with me uh, to 1 Peter. We were in 2 Peter before. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Peter picks up on some very similar ideas to Psalm 10 as he closes his first epistle. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The helpless commit themselves to the faithful creator. Well, what does it look like to entrust our souls to this faithful creator? Peter gives us some practical guidance on what it looks like to entrust our souls, to commit ourselves to this God. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, we see that committing ourselves, entrusting our souls to the faithful creator, means we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We saw in Psalm 10, the wicked are arrogant, and they are trusting in their own might. The wicked are arrogant about their ability, their power, their strength. But those who commit themselves to God know they are helpless. Those who commit themselves to God know they are dependent. And so if we are to commit ourselves to God, the first thing we need to do is humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Then in 1 Peter 5, 7, we see that this involves casting our anxieties on God. Why? 
because he cares for you. To entrust ourselves to God, to commit ourselves to God, is to cast all of our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for us. Because God is our helper. Because he sees, he hears, he strengthens, and he will do justice. So we entrust ourselves to him by casting our cares on the one who cares for us, the helper of the helpless. And then notice also in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. If we're to commit ourselves to this God and trust ourselves to our creator, we need to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. We need to cast our anxieties on him, and we need to resist the devil. We saw in Psalm 10 that human, the human wicked prowl around like a lion seeking to devour. But we see here in 1 Peter that our greatest enemy, Satan, also prowls around like a lion. And we are to resist him. And our resistance involves at least the opposite of those other two ways that we commit ourselves to God. To resist the devil, we resist the temptation to overcome the wicked by our own might instead of humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. To resist the devil, we must resist the temptation to overcome the wicked by our own might Instead of humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just ask you, this week, have you been more inclined to strengthen your arsenal or humble your heart? Now, I am not against being responsible. I'm not against security. I mean, right now, I am very grateful that there are men that I am literally trusting my life to right now. But is our ultimate hope, is our first response in the face of wickedness and evil in the world, I'm going to be mightier. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be greater. Or is it, I am going to bow before the mighty God who is my only hope. Resist the temptation to overcome the wicked by our own might. But then second, resist the temptation to absorb our anxieties into fear instead of casting our anxieties on God. Let me ask you another question. In light of the wickedness we've seen in the world this week, are you pulling your kids out of school or are you teaching your kids to pray? We must resist the temptation to let our anxieties form fears and unbelief and instead cast our anxieties on God, committing ourselves to him, trusting him alone. Commit yourself to God. And finally, how do we respond? Pray for justice. Pray. For justice. This is what we see David doing here in this psalm. He laments 
and he prays for justice. We pray for justice in the short term. This is something that God did for David with many of his enemies. He brought a a, a justice in the short term. Uh, We see in Scripture that God has even right now in the short term uh, given human governments and law enforcement as his instruments, his ministers of his justice in the world. And to see that, we don't have to leave 1 Peter. Just flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so we pray for justice now. Even as we wait for the final day, we pray for those who are guilty to be brought to justice now. We pray for the end of oppression now. We pray and we work to see God's justice even in the world now. But ultimately, our prayer for justice sounds like this. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Because the justice that we long for, ultimately we will not see until that day that Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and he reigns forever and ever as we've seen in Psalm 10 and verse 16. We long for the day when the Lord is king forever and ever. We long for the day that we see here in 1 Peter 5. Look at verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We long for the day that John sees in Revelation 11. Let's turn one last place. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones fell uh, before God on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That is the day that we long for. The day when God's justice reigns on the earth forever and ever. And while we wait for that day, we lament the evil that we see in this world. 
We weep, we ache, we groan. But we also understand God's patience, the patience that makes it possible for even the most vile offender to truly believe and repent. And so we commit ourselves to this God who is just and merciful. We trust him with our very lives and we pray for justice. We pray for justice in the here and now and we pray for the Lord to hasten the day that Jesus returns. And on that day, God will repay wickedness done against the helpless. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. One of the ways that we incline our hearts to pray, come, Lord Jesus, is through the Lord's Supper. Jesus said he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. Paul said that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread represents Jesus' body broken. The the, uh, cup represents Jesus' blood shed in his death. And as we partake of this bread and this cup, we remember Jesus' death. In his death, Jesus, the holy God and perfect man, took upon himself the judgment of God that we deserve for our disregard of God, that we deserve for our wickedness against God and against our fellow man. Now, because of what Jesus has done, because of his patience and kindness and grace to us in the death of Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can know God, commit ourselves to him, and find help for apart from Christ. We are helpless. This is a meal for those who have repented and trusted in Jesus. So if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, we would ask that you please abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. Instead, 